You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today from Washington, D.C. by Nina Jankowitz a disinformation or the disinformation fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars and also the author of a new book which is out this week, How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News and the Future of Conflict. Thanks for joining us, Nina. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you found yourself drafted into the front lines of the information war? Sure. So I, uh, my background, obviously, uh, as you can see from all the consonants in my last name is, is Polish, uh, mostly. I also have some Ukrainian blood. So I, I took an early interest when I was a kid in Central and Eastern Europe and in Russia, um, studied Russian and Eastern European politics in college and graduate school. And my first job out of grad school was to support democracy activists in Russia and Belarus, those bastions of democracy. And that was kind of before information warfare was cool. So you could call me, I guess, a disinformation hipster in some ways. Uh, We in my organization were the subject of a lot of Russian government propaganda. They said that we were, you know, fomenting revolutions by working with activists who were pro-democracy in Russia. And while I was working at that organization is when the Ukraine conflict started, um, and Russia invaded Ukraine, annexed Crimea, and started this disinformation onslaught in Ukraine. And I was extremely interested in that. I've always been interested in in social movements and how, especially how they use the internet and communications to get their word out. And so I decided it was a good time to go to Ukraine and, and try to do what I can to see what was going on there and to help if I could. And I found this fellowship uh, through the Fulbright program, which is you know a, a U.S. exchange program that brings scholars here to the United States and sends other folks out all around the world. And through that program, I got to advise the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry on strategic communications uh, between 2016 and 2017, which was an interesting time to be there, given the uh, outcome of the U.S. election and the revelations about Russian interference. And that's kind of where the idea for the book came from. I was there in Kiev, Ukraine, watching all of all of the Western world basically freak out about Russian interference, which had been occurring in Central and Eastern Europe for a decade before that. And so I thought that would be a good idea for the for a book to to educate people so we didn't have to reinvent the wheel in our response and perhaps so we could, you know, mount something that was a little bit co- more coherent at the start. And unfortunately, I think we've lost a lot of ground since the idea for the book popped into my head, but I still think there's time to kind of right this ship, if you will. The book is How to Lose the Information War and it's a you've got a series of case studies about how different Eastern European countries sort of didn't handle 
disinformation very well. And it seems like maybe uh, ended up being a playbook for how the United States is handling it, which is also not very well. Yeah, I, there were a lot more similarities than I anticipated when I started the research for the book. We were in a really different place in, in 2016, 2017, when the idea first came to me than we are in now. And I think one of the most unfortunate similarities across the case studies is that all of the countries who are staunchly against Russian interference and their national security doctrine, etc., but don't call it out when it happens domestically, are ones that are in a pretty dire situation with their response to disinformation. Um, and I would certainly put the United States in the same uh, same boat. We, you know, have plenty of organizations and uh, departments across our civil service that are working on this issue, but their hard work is undermined every day by the president of the United States when he shares disinformation and, and you know, invites foreign interference from a variety of countries, including Russia and China. And it, it's it's sad to see because we really ought to be leading the way here. And instead, um, we're not only leaving ourselves more vulnerable, we're just abdicating any leadership we might have had. One of the elements in your book that's interesting is you discuss the ways in which Russian state in disinformation reaches out to and mobilizes uh, important sectors in other societies which share a similar agenda, let's say. How much do these campaigns that are being conducted by Russia or other states rely upon identifying and being able to utilise uh, sympathetic actors in other societies? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that I think a lot of people get wrong about disinformation and fake news. They think it's about, you know, just cut and dry fakes, fake websites, fake stories. But actually, in every case study that I detail in the book, and certainly in developments since the book went to print, we have seen that Russia uses the pre-existing fissures in our societies and often latches on to pre-existing activist movements in societies to spread its messages and to increase division. So in Estonia in 2007, it used ethnic Russian populations, Russian-speaking populations there to uh, undermine Estonian sovereignty. In Georgia, it you know dealt with ethnic tensions around the war in 2008. In Poland, it uses conspiracy theories about the 2010 plane crash that killed the president and almost 100 other members of the Polish political elite. In the Czech Republic, it uses anti-Muslim sentiment in society, of which there is unfortunately a lot. And in Ukraine, it, it uses ethnic tensions as well as uh, anti-Ukrainian sentiment within the European Union as, you know, Ukraine seeks to expand toward Euro-Atlantic integration. So all of those instances have movements attached to them in their natural context and authentic context. And that makes it really, really difficult to push back against disinformation when it's out there, because we don't want to, you know, quash freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And when you're removing content that is authentically shared by local national activist groups, um, you're getting very, very close to infringing on, on freedom of speech. The other interesting factor in the book that you discuss is the increasing role of social media and uh, sites like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and so on, and the ways in which they've been harnessed and seemingly make themselves vulnerable to these sorts of campaigns. Can you explain why it is that social media has played such a critical role 
in uh, rolling out these campaigns? Well, I think the most important thing to understand is that it's part of the business model. Facebook and, and Mark Zuckerberg now have that famous moment when Zuckerberg was testifying in front of Congress the first time. And Orrin Hatch, a senator, asked him, uh, how does Facebook make money as a free product? And Zuckerberg gets kind of this, you know, self-righteous grin on his face. And he says, Senator, we run ads and those ads run on our personal information, right? So all of that micro-targeting that happens on every social media platform that Google enables, that Facebook is, you know, probably the king of and to some extent happens on Twitter, although Twitter has now stopped running all political ads. This is this is how they make their money. And those tools mean that di- disinformation has been democratized. If you have a social media account and a credit card, you can drive information messages to the exact population that is going to be most vulnerable. And not only that, if you don't know who's going to be most vulnerable to those messages, you can test them out for very, very small amounts of money. Um, And then even beyond the ad model, in terms of driving engagement, all of these platforms have started to shift to more private spaces. So we see, for instance, Facebook really using groups as a vector for engagement, uh, especially after Cambridge Analytica. They wanted people to feel private and safe online. So they kind of really boosted groups in the structure of the platform. And unfortunately, those are being increasingly used for organizing of, uh, you know, all sorts of baddies, white supremacists. The Boogaloo movement had a huge presence on Facebook, all of these things, you know, these are the this is the creepy basement of the internet. It's not your digital living room. And they're segmented by interest and people trust them because it's a group. You have to be added to it. You have to, you know, fill out a tiny little application to get into it. You know, they they interact with them on a daily basis, get to know people in there. But unfortunately, they they can be uh, infiltrated by bad actors, whether those are foreign or domestic. You recently wrote a piece for for Wired about uh, Facebook groups arguing that they posed a particular threat. And uh, certainly in Australia, we've seen uh, Australian Facebook groups were some of some of the key movers of disinformation about the coronavirus uh, with the, the pandemic documentary. It, was, it seemed largely pushed by Australian-based groups. W- what else is it about Facebook groups that makes them so dangerous? What are, what are the other elements that are causing them to be such a problem. Yeah. So in addition to the fact that people feel, you know, safe there is the fact that Facebook is incentivizing users to join them and to be active in them uh, and is suggesting, you know, if you join one group. So in doing the research for that Wired story that you mentioned, which is called Facebook groups are destroying America, I would have said destroying democracy or destroying the world, maybe. But, <laughs> you know, that was the editor's choice. In that piece, we looked at um, how I joined an anti-vax group and then was suggested very quickly after joining that group to join a QAnon conspiracy group, a false flag conspiracy group, and a white supremacist group, just based on Facebook suggestions, because it's, you know, it wants to keep you engaged on that platform. And so the algorithm is saying, oh, all these other members of this group are also members of these groups. So perhaps Nina wants to join them as well. And that's the sort of thing that it's encouraging users to do. And not only that, you know, it's sending you notifications 
notifications from your groups primarily. If you've looked at them recently, you'll get a ton of notifications every time somebody posts or shares something in that group. And if you go on Facebook's Discover page, even outside of like the normal group suggestions page, you'll see that even your your interests, you know, I've been on Facebook for probably 16 years or something since I was in high school. Um, and y- until recently, my, my, my interests were stuff like, uh, oh, so you went to a women's college, here's some women's college Facebook groups, or, uh, you know, I'm in a group called Dog Spotting, which you post pictures of cute dogs and show it would recommend to me other dog groups. And now there's all this crazy right wing conspiracy theory content in there because I joined some of these groups for my research. And I find that it's very, you know, disconcerting to see that 15 or 16 years of engagement on the platform can be usurped just by a couple of, of, of research inquiries that I've made in a very short period of time. So Facebook is incentivizing this behavior. It is incentivizing radicalization, essentially. And Facebook knows that. Their own research has indicated that. And for some reason, they've done very little to, to stop this. Actually, I don't need to speculate as to the reason. I know the reason. The reason is because it keeps <laughs> it keeps people engaged on the platform, right? And, and that's very, very disturbing. They can say that they want to, you know, have a positive social impact as much as they want. But until they put democracy above their bottom line, that's just not going to happen. Along with the uh, rise of Facebook and other social media that's tended to monopolize communications, um, internet communications at least, we've also seen a decline in uh, what's now termed legacy media and also the decline of uh, localized uh, media that would previously provide some sense of community to people in a whole range of different places, along with, I guess, uh, the introduction of legislative mechanisms that try to control or place limits upon the ability of Facebook and others to spread disinformation. Do you think that the um, other forms of media can compete and can survive in this quite hostile environment, whereas you've noted uh, advertisers are flocking to Facebook for very good reasons. This is something that just depresses me when I think about it. And I often tell the story of how growing up in, in the state of New Jersey, my my hometown is uh, about an hour away from New York City, an hour away from, from Philadelphia. So we were, it was suburban, right? But still pretty pretty close to two of the, the big cities in the United States. And yet still, my parents always subscribed to our local newspaper. It was delivered to our driveway every morning. And as I grew up, that paper got thinner and thinner, basically, until my parents stopped subscribing and would only get the New York Times on on Sundays um, in terms of their print media that they subscribe to. So we have these kind of local news deserts happening. And now my hometown is served by online only local media um, that don't do a very good job. And I think the the stories are mostly just aggregated, um, potentially even by AI. I'm not sure, but there's no, there's not that same sort of you know personal touch that there used to be, and those Facebook groups are filling the gap in in many cases. But we also have, especially in the United States, for some reason, an aversion to to publicly funded media. Our Corporation for Public Public Broadcasting, which funds PBS and NPR, uh, spends three dollars per person per year on 
on public media, which is just a, a crazy statistic, particularly when you look at the BBC, for instance, which uh, spends a lot more. And of course, Brits pay pay their licensing fees to the BBC. But look at the impact that they have. And look at the, if you look at some of the polling, uh, Brits trust the BBC in a time of crisis. Um, I think some something over 55% of Brits trust a BBC in the, in the time of crisis. And, and we don't have that here in the United States. Uh, I can't think of a single outlet that 55% of Americans would turn to, especially during these last couple months. Uh, our media environment has only become more fragmented. So all, all of these are issues. <laughs> and and unfortunately, when you add social media into the mix, yeah, the, the outlets are absolutely at a disadvantage. And something I've been calling for for a long time that to some extent, the platforms have, have started to do, although I think they could make an even greater investment, is to provide, uh, you know, advertising credits to a lot of the reputable outlets. Now, of course, then we have the issue of the the, the platforms deciding who it is and is not reputable, and they've not had a very good track record of that to begin with. I think Breitbart and The Daily Caller are both members of Facebook's fact-checking program, which is insanity. Still. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that that presents another problem. But again, um, there there are ways to to supplement journalism, to supplement journalism as a public good. I would, you know, they could all make large donations every year to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting or something like that. Who knows? But uh, unfortunately. Unfortunately, you know, the situation as it is, is is just atrophying and particularly even during these times of crisis when we're so relying on journalism. Um, I think something like 38,000 journalists were laid off in the United States in the first couple weeks of the pandemic here. Um, and I know many of them personally. And it's, you know, the gap that this leaves at, at such a critical time can't be understated. So we've got to we've got to figure this out. But I think until people recognize that journalism is a public good and that we do need some gatekeepers of information because there's just too much of it right now. We need that lens, especially with the local kind of flavor to understand what's going on in, in, you know, the big cities of the world and interpret it for that local audience. Without that, we're, we're pretty lost. And that's where those vacuums are filled by less than trustworthy information. You're listening to 3CR 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We are talking to Nina Jankowitz about disinformation. I thought it was interesting reading the book, some of the parallels between what you were talking about happening in Eastern Europe and things that were happening right now were really quite stark. For example, in the chapter on Estonia, you talk about, you know, the how, way that a lot of emotion around a statue removal was exploited. Uh-huh, and then yes. <laughs> looking uh, just in the last few weeks, there've just been a number of right-wing mobilizations against these imaginary Antifa events that were going to take down statues and burn flags and things. But in a lot of those cases, upon the announcement that Antifa were coming to this town or that town, those events were almost immediately debunked as hoaxes, but to seemingly little avail. What do you think the answer is when people just don't want to hear that they're being manipulated? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the problem with fact-checking, unfortunately. Um, we, we tend to look at fact-checking as like the the savior of of uh, the counter-disinformation movement. But it, when, you know, for instance, if somebody was posting an Antifa uh, debunking of, of uh, some statue being taken down, in fact, this just happened in, in Gettysburg in the U.S. over the July 4th weekend, 
uh, people don't want to hear it. They say that's, you know, deep state propaganda or something like that. So this is why I, you know, turn to equipping people with tools that they need to uh, to really navigate this information environment rather than um, just trying to beat it over the, over their heads and say, no, 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 you're wrong. Here's why. Um, give them the tools to find the answer for themselves. And unfortunately, sometimes we see kind of media literacy tactics being turned on their head and folks who are conspiracy theorists saying things like, oh, no, just do your research. Do your research. I've done my <laughs> research and this is what it's led me to. Um, but we, unfortunately, especially for you know, adults middle-aged and up in, in all over the world, you know, they've grown up in an era where they've had gatekeepers, uh, they've had people doing content curation, whether they understand that or not, their entire lives. And suddenly they've been hit with this unprecedented information flow. And they trust some random website that looks like it was built on GeoCities in 1995, as much as they trust the website of uh, of some of the, you know, more important journalistic outlets in the world and don't understand how the journalistic process works, don't understand how information is vetted. So all of these things are really important for people to kind of pick their way through information and find their own way. And I think there are instances of, of this working. I talk about a couple examples in the book, uh, for instance, in Ukraine, where media literacy programs have had um, a pretty, you know, not insignificant impact um, on adults who, after even a period of something like 18 months, are still using the skills that they they got during those trainings to uh, to work their way around the information space. It's unfortunately, it's not a uh, it's not a magic wand. It's not something that's going to work overnight. Um, it's a generational investment and is going to take, in many cases, a lot of different interventions over time to kind of bring people to more to healthier social media consumption habits. But I think, you know, just the same way we've all learned to ignore emails from Nigerian princes who think that they're going to make us rich, uh, we can we can kind of get people's guard up to false information on the internet as well. It became a common phrase during uh, recent economic crises that major banks were simply too big to fail, that their collapse uh, couldn't be countenanced because the effects would be so disastrous upon the economy and Society. Do you think that social media companies like Facebook and so on, are they too big to tame? Are they simply too large, too powerful, that even if there was willing uh, a willing party to uh, introduce uh, legislation that might regulate the content, uh, that won't be done because to take on those giants means the ends of uh, political careers? I hope not. I think there there are people who are a lot you know, more uh, smart about antitrust law and things like that, who who make comparisons to the car industry in its early days or to, you know, the tobacco industry and how uh, our legislatures took on both of those. I think there is definitely cause to think about breaking up these entities, at least in terms of, you know, Facebook's acquisition of WhatsApp and Instagram. But also, <laughs> there's something to be said for forcing Facebook to to have representation, at least, in, in every country that it exists in. I often get very upset dealing with countries like Ukraine, where they have to really struggle to get anybody to listen to them, even though they are on the front lines of the disinformation war. And Facebook certainly has, has been, I would say, somewhat criminally negligent in that space, along with, you know, Burma, Brazil, India, where posts on Facebook have led to violence and even deaths. Um, and this is where I think 
international organizations can really provide platform for the powerful nations and the less powerful to band together and demand action from these companies. Um, they can, you know, the EU has had some some success in in regulating Facebook with its general data protection regulation. Although, you know, jury's still out about overall effect- effectiveness. I think uh, there has been an increase in awareness about how Facebook works in the EU, and they do have some leverage over over the company. But I don't think they're too big to tame. I think we just need some brave lawmakers who are who are going to act because if you look at what has changed Facebook's behavior, it is public outcry. Um, after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, after the 2016 election, uh, even recently with the Stop Hate for Profit campaign here in the United States in the wake of the George Floyd protests, although Mark Zuckerberg says that they're not going to budge, they've had some pretty significant changes in their platform over the last couple of weeks. So I think it's possible that that things start to shift um, and we just need somebody who's going to take the responsibility and, and lead that charge. We live in uh, very interesting times. Some have made comparisons to our current uh, economic and political circumstances to an earlier period in the 20th century with emergent fascism and the far right. I was wondering, I know you've taken uh, some exception to the term fake news, but have you been able to establish any kind of historical analysis or continuity between our current period and, say, the early 20th century when similar terms like uh, Lugan Press or the Lying Press became fairly popular and was utilised in political discourse? So, Have you been able to trace the history of this kind of concept of fake news? So I'm a little bit less of a historian, but I would point you to Heidi Torek's work. She is a historian and has written pretty extensively on these issues, including her most recent book, which examines the press in Germany at the beginning of the 20th uh, century called News from Germany. So I would just direct you to her work. I think she's really, really great. And uh, and yeah, I wholeheartedly endorse Heidi. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good recommendation. I have a, I have a much more <laughs> up-to-date question. Uh, this is largely to indulge my own curiosity. Did you follow the DC blackout hashtag uh, kerfuffle at all? Nina? Yes, yes. Um, and that is a confusing and, and weird event that it seems that many bad actors, including Russia and China, have, you know, glommed on to um, as is their, you know, practice. Um, but it's just a great example of how the online information environment can be manipulated, especially around times of crisis. Um, anybody is going to jump jump onto that stuff and it can be unknowingly amplified by, um, by you know, real actors in our system. So in this case, we had a lot of Black Lives Matter activists saying that they were being basically shadow banned from from platforms that the media wasn't covering uh, what they were doing. But but in reality, this just started from one troll account that was then uh, removed by Twitter, as I understand it. So it's a it's been a tumultuous few weeks in in the disinfo space, few months, really, since the beginning of the pandemic. (laughs) I thought it was especially confusing, though, because after, after the initial sort of hashtag went out, that there was a either it sort of differed b- between whether it was, you know, people's social media was being blocked or whether, you know, the power was out and the guns were firing. <laughs> but then there were these tweets debunking it that were seemingly being pushed by compromised accounts. Yeah. So there were thousands of the same tweets saying, no, the DC blackout isn't real. But then, of course, that has the impact of sending the uh, the hashtag to the stop of, top of trending. It was it seemed like there was a lot going on there. 
And yeah. I, I just want someone to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody has yet, unfortunately. <laughs> a lot of the stuff, especially with attribution, and this is another thing that, you know, we could legislate if we had the balls, pardon my French. Um, but a lot of the information related to attribution, uh, whether to domestic or, or foreign state actors in the disinformation space, it's just not available to open source researchers because it's on the back end of the platforms. And what we get from Facebook especially is takedown reports that just are, you know, they'll offer overarching statistics and they'll tell us the narrative they want us to hear about what these accounts were pushing. But they only give us a, a, a few snippets of, of what was actually being shared. Um, and that's only for foreign accounts. They don't do any of the same stuff for domestic accounts, which is frustrating. Uh, and they claim to be taking down, you know, millions of, of fake accounts a day. And it would be interesting to see why. I'll have always been an advocate of, particularly when there's a coordinated campaign, keeping that information online and creating a sort of fake news museum of sorts, where people could go and see if they've interacted with that content, see why it was taken down, you know, be linked to the appropriate parts of Facebook's terms of service, because I think people often forget that Facebook is not a free speech zone. It is a private platform that has rules that govern it, and it's allowed to be that way. And that would really increase people's awareness of, of these operations. But unfortunately, again, because of, of the economic incentive, Facebook uh, is really hesitant to do that and um, continue to just give us the edited version of, of what they've taken down. Twitter is a little bit better. They just do data dumps on on all the stuff they take down. But that means that, you know, researchers have to wade through it. It's not presented in a way that is easily consumable for the average person. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Nina, thanks very much for joining us. If people would like to get the book, it's called How to Lose the Information War, and it should be out today. Well, Andy, that was an interesting chat there with Nina Jankowitz from the the Wilson Centre. What did you think? Uh, yes, I, I do think it was interesting. Um, it posed uh, many questions about, um, well, the law, but also, I suppose, from my perspective, how uh, members of the general public can respond to this uh, deluge of uh, fake news. Perhaps, Cam, they could support independent or community radio. Uh, <laughs> yes, they could. That's all we've got time for. Uh, to take us out, here is a little clip from Beyond the Bars in honour of the now... Uh, postponed Nardoc week and we'll catch you next week Global Intifada is up next see you later just say like our sister or family out there have got a mobile with the internet you can download the Skype app and get a Skype number and so it's a 30 cents call so when we call them it's calling their phone on the internet and it's 30 cents oh I get it thank you yeah so I do that with both my kids so now I can speak to them at the start it was going through credit like that yeah, okay. Because so ringing mobile phones and it just goes. So the Skype number worked good. Yeah, that's good. And that's good for family to know out there. If you're ringing a mobile, it actually costs more than the outside. It's $8 for 12 minutes. Yeah. And that's what we pay, which is a day's pay to make a phone call to your family. And we've complained to their services, but nothing changes. Yeah, yeah but it's, yeah, if you want to ring your family every day, it's, well, it's impossible. Do you have to book in to use the phone or is it like a public phone No, you just sit in a line. There's not enough phones for yeah. all us women anyway. So there's nine out in the whole compound that we're all allowed to use and that's, yeah. yeah. And we're all, we can't use, like, so two phones for Margaret's and then two phones for Mitchell and, yeah, so that's how it is. We're not, we're not allowed to use the other phones. Or we lose phone privileges for two weeks. <laughs>